Michael Descoli, and God has appointed me pastor of Summit Church here. Glad to have you with us. We are simply teaching the Bible one book at a time, and currently we're working through the book of Ephesians. So when someone says, thank you for what you shared with us last week, um, I have no control over what I share. We're only trying to honor the word here. So if you're in the book of Ephesians, let's just do some review quickly and, uh, and then uh, catch us up all, all to speed. The, the book of Ephesians is called an epistle, which means it's a letter. It's a letter by the Apostle Paul to the church of Ephesus. Okay, this is a church that Paul's largely responsible for. He began with 12 men who were baptized under the ministry of John the Baptist, and Paul served there about two years and six months, six months in the temple there, and then two years in a public place uh, sharing with the people. It can be basically be broken down into two major sections, and those sections are these. Chapters 1 through 3 talks about our position in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 talks about the believer's practices, how should we then live. Now, some choose to break Ephesians down into three sections that go like this. Our wealth as believers, and thus this is the, the reason for the title of our series that we have, Things Money Can't Buy. And right now I'm in a little two-part thing called How Rich Are We Really in Christ? So we have our, our, our wealth in Christ. Then we have our, our walk with Christ, which... Uh, so now we have position and then practices, okay? So wealth in Christ, chapters 1 through 3, wealth in Christ, uh, or uh, walk with Christ, chapters 4 and 5, and then warfare, and if you know chapter 6, it deals with the fact that there are forces that oppose the things of Christ, and so it's how to deal with those. Watchman Nee summed it up with a little book that he entitled, Your Position in Christ, Walk, which we've already discussed, and then stand, which means when you're faced with opposition, this is how you can stand. Now, we've used chapter 1, verse 18 as a prayer for this study. So listen to this prayer that Paul prays. And this is not the prayer I intended from the book, but this is the one that we keep coming back to. Paul prays these words. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that may, you may know, number one, the hope to which Christ has called you. Two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And three, his incomparably great power for us who believe. So right here you see this little title, Things That Money Can't Buy. How rich are we really? Looking at chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 14. Some call these verses a doxology. Do you know that word doxology? Yeah, does the song come to your mind, praise God from whom all blessings flow? Some people call this the doxology of Ephesians. And in the original language, all these verses are one sentence. Okay, Paul, a map of run-on sentences, has a word from the Lord to, to give. But if I hope Ephesians does anything for us, I hope that it helps us to understand what is ours in Christ so that we can begin to live the abundance that Christ has made available for us. Now, what are those things? Well, again, by way of review, verse 3. Those who are in Christ are blessed in the heavenly 
every spiritual blessing. What do those blessings include? Well, in verse 4, that we were chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Why is that important? It's important because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And God wants us to live with him, so we have to become holy. So through Christ, he's made for our holiness. He's made a way for us to come and stand before him. So the application here is that we can approach God with confidence because of what Christ has done and is doing in our lives. In verse 5, that in love, God predestined us to be adopted as sons. Why is that important? Friends, you don't get in the kingdom by adoption. You get into the kingdom by regeneration. You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born again. But when you're born again, it's at that point that God adopts you, meaning that God gives you an adult relationship before Him. Why? Because babies can't claim inheritance, but adults can. Do you hear that? Babies can't claim inheritance. Adults can. That means that God has put at your disposal right now all of his kingdom benefits so that you can use them as you life in Ephesus so that you can use them right now. Okay, my microphone is cutting out, right? Is that problems for you? It's working? You're able to track. All right, good. Then I'm just going to press on. So the location here... Tom, is there something you'd like me to try? Okay. The application here is that we must learn to operate out of the kingdom benefits that God has put at our disposal. Okay. Verse 7, that we have redemption through his blood. In other words, he purchased us for the purpose of setting us free, setting us free from the chains of, of sin and death freedom from the fear of death in the flesh, of knowing that our eternity is secure in the kingdom of God. Christ paid the price to buy our freedom. And so the application there, yeah, you can give glory to God for that. Awesome. Is learn to operate out of the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus. Okay, now, I'm going to just read the rest of this section here, and then we'll break it apart, okay? Starting with verse 9. This is continuing the second part of how rich are we really. Look at this. And he made known to us will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to, his, to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, just quickly, let's add to our list of riches in Christ. Verses 9 and 10. He has revealed to us the mystery of his will. 
What is that? Verse 11, that we are now fitting into God's plans for us. Verse 12, that we now exist for his praise and for his glory, which means that we go about as living examples statements to the world that God is alive and well and making a difference in the lives of those who trust him. Verse 13, that we are now included with Christ, which means we are joint heirs with Jesus. And we've already seen that, but it's reinforced again. Verse 13b through 14, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a deposit and guarantee of our future inheritance. Okay, now let's move in a little closer here. Verse 9, Those who have faith in Christ now know the mystery of his will. Friends, this isn't some kind of secret that God is trying to keep from us. This is something that he's making known to those who are trying And part of that has to do with who Christ is, Christ came to do. It didn't matter how many times Jesus told his disciples that he must die and on the third day be raised from the dead. They could not understand it until it was unveiled after Christ's resurrection. And the mystery is this. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who came for the purpose of dying and at his dying moment took our sins upon himself, carried them to the so that we would never have to be bothered by them again. But there's another part of the mystery in Express 10. When times have reached their fulfillment, all things in heaven and earth will be brought together in unity under the headship of Christ. It's a mystery. It's a mystery uh, for those who give their lives for the purpose of seeing peace in their lifetime, world peace in their lifetime. This should be good news because it's a promise that peace is coming. Unfortunately, however, if peace has become your God, meaning that it's your primary pursuit in life, then this only frustrates you because it's not going to play out according to your time. And I would challenge you to consider that you probably want to make peace because you want to show all those previous generations how foolish war is. And you're denying the problem that's happening here. This is a mystery because total peace will never come by man's initiative. Total peace begins with God because God is the God of all peace and peace only begins by settling the most primary war of all. Peace only begins by making peace with God. I'm working really hard today. But I'm trusting God and I'm believing this word's gonna speak into the life of someone. You see, when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, it was perfect peace. It was peace between God and man, peace with man and man, peace with creation. But when man chose to go his own independent way, all of this peace began to unravel. Because you can't have everyone doing their own thing and operating independent of each other and expect peace to happen. At some point, there's going to be envy somewhere. And the moment we were separated from God, 
We were separated from the one who is the source of all things, which means we were separated from peace. And if you want to see that, look it up in Genesis chapter 3, the breaking of a relationship between God and man. As a result of that, creation was subjected to frustration. We're not just talking about your life. We're talking about all creation and the problems of earth. If you want to see that, check it out in Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 18. The best example of creation frustrated is in the relationship between one man and another. So in Genesis chapter 3, we find the, the, the fragmenting of peace. And immediately in chapter 4, we find the first war. And what it is, it's between the two brothers, the sons of Adam and Eve. We're, we're going to do this with power. Let me shake things up. When Cain, out of envy, murdered his own brother. Then it progresses because in Genesis chapter 11, we see man's futile attempts to try to create peace on their own. It's referred to as the Tower of, of Babylon. And at first, it seems like a great effort. It seems like a, a really awesome effort until you realize that their motives were impure. The reason they were out to build this tower was to make a name for themselves. In other words, we can establish peace apart from God. And God comes down. He sees what's going on here. He frustrates their languages, and now you have the potential of conflict among the nations. That's what's happening. Sin unravels. It tears things apart. But under the headship of Christ, we just read in Ephesians 1, all things will be brought together. And as you submit to Christ, you become a part of God's eternal program for peace. I love the statement that God makes when he people at Babel. He says this, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Did you hear that? Operating as one, nothing will be impossible for them. This is the way God created us. He created us to operate in harmony with one another, to operate in harmony with God so that all things would be possible, but when everybody's going their own independent way, that possibility gets broken and it doesn't work. So Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, 17, calls for a reinstatement of the kind of unity for which God created us. Listen to his words here, praying for you and me, for the future believers. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Did you see it? Did you see what we were created for? Did you see God's intention for us? This is the will of God for the church. And, and God is not going to be glorified because we come up with a better doctrine or because we come up with a better way or because we come up with some new rule for the church or, God forbid, that we get a building. But peace is going to come when we stop 
focusing on our own independent desires. When you stop wanting what you want, I stop wanting what I want, and we're all surrendered to say, Christ, you reign supreme. We want what you want. In the application, all right. The application here, are we praying for the unity of believers? And this is all about exalting Christ. All eyes on Jesus. This word that I got, this unusual word four years ago, make way for the Christ. This is what we need to do. And we stop worrying about what I have or what you have and I don't have. And we stop thinking about uh, how somebody's in my way. And we start focusing on how can I love them as Christ loved me. God says it's when we operate that way that we begin to participate in things of eternal significance. Hear it again, verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment. In other words, until Christ's return, when he reigns supreme, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. There's the fullness of the mystery completed in the future, but we don't just relax there, friends. We are peacemakers for the glory of God. Our effort is how do I serve my brother, not how do I get my brother's and not envying something that my brother has, but celebrating God's blessing on their lives and rejoicing with them. That's what it's all about. Amen? All right, I'm going to keep going. We were now, I've got to stop right there because if you get out the King James Bible, the NIV again gets this wrong. It, the King James says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Okay, now, if you get out the Amplified Bible, it gets it better when it says this. We were made his portion and obtained is his inheritance. And I say that's probably the better understanding right here because what God is saying is that we have and we share in his inheritance, but we're a part of his estate, which means we have great value. Do you know that a collectible is only as valuable as someone is willing to pay for it? And you can have all kinds of old stuff, but if someone's not willing to pay a price for it, it's not very valuable. And you can know that you have extreme value willing to pay the ultimate price for you. And so you share in his inheritance, but you are a part of that inheritance, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's what God is doing, working out his will and allowing us to use our future benefits that are made available now so that he can be glorified as we walk in our personal Ephesus in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, verse 13, we've got to look at a little bit here for a bit. This is the gospel in verse 13. And notice it. If you're a believer, first off, at some point in your life, you are able to hear the word of truth, the good news of Christ, because the Spirit of God made it alive to us. Now, that didn't just happen because the word happens to be floating around, but somewhere along the way, you heard it spoken, 
And when you heard it, that word came alive in you. For God so loved the world that he gave one and only son that whoever believes in him should but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And even churches out there want to give you a message of condemnation. Did you hear what it says? It's not a message of condemnation. It's a message of hope and salvation. You heard that? It came alive. So what did you do next? You believed. See, just stop with hearing. It moves to having believed because it's simply not enough to hear the, the good. We have to do something with it. Romans 10 puts it well when it says, The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You hear the word. You believe the word. Part of that includes baptism, making a public statement of your faith. Jesus didn't have to be baptized, but he was, as an example to us all. And at his baptism, the, uh, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove, and the Father said, this is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. And the Father has the same plan for us. And we see it in verse chapter 1, verse 13. You are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Let's talk about the seal for just a little bit now. A seal means a finished transaction. See, every once in a while, I need to make a document official, and I need an official witness to put his seal on that document. I go to a notary republic, and that notary republic becomes a notary public becomes a, an official uh, witness of the transaction being made. He puts a seal on it. God puts his seal on you. He is your official witness. That's what that's talking about. But it doesn't stop there. It also implies ownership. When I was a little boy, I had an aunt who lived in Chicago. I lived in Tucson. And every once in a while, my Aunt Lee would clean her house, take all the stuff that she no longer wanted, put it in a package, and mail it to us kids in Tucson. I loved getting packages from Aunt Lee. It was like getting a treasure. And when I was about 10, she put in there one of those label makers, you know, those things with the colored tape that you slide into the letter, and you turn the letter. You have to do every letter individually and click, you know, and then turn it again, click, right? And me being the controlling person I was, I claimed that label maker for myself, and everything I had said Michael Descoli on it. I still have some of my toys from when I was a kid now, and Valerie cracks up every time she sees one of them because there's the label, Michael Descoli. Listen, when you live with six kids and you share a bedroom with four of them, you want everybody to know what's yours. Stay away from my stuff, Right? So, God's seal implies ownership. But it doesn't only give us this official seal and ownership. It's about security and protection. If you get a letter or a document that has a wax seal on it, it's there for a reason. That wax seal 
tells the intended receiver that this letter is being delivered to you as intended. No one has manipulated. When Jesus was buried in the tomb, a Roman seal was placed over the tomb, sending a message that no one has messed with the body in that tomb. And friends, God puts this seal on you as a seal of protection, indicating you will be delivered to the intended receiver, and no one can mess with you along the way. But there's another thing. That seal represents authenticity because we have God's signature on us. Romans 8 9 says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So the Holy Spirit is God's signing on us. This one is mine. But it continues in verse 14. Look at this. The Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession for the praise of his So notice those words. The Holy Spirit is a deposit of guarantee. That means the Holy Spirit is like earnest money. If I am in the market for a house and I see a house I really want, I put earnest money down to tell that owner that he can be confident I'm intentional about buying his house. He can take it off the market and no longer available. I'm earnest about purchasing your house, and here's some money for you to guarantee it. Friends, God has his earnest money on you, which means that he has put money down on you for the purpose of owning you, and you are off the market. You are no longer available. But not only that, (laughs) it's like an engagement ring. When that man proposes to that woman and puts that engagement ring on her, she wears it with confidence, saying, I know who my bridegroom is. There's a wedding date in the works, and I am no longer available. Well, friends, the Bible describes Christ as the groom. The church as the bridegroom, as the as the the future bride. (laughs) What am I doing? (laughs) Oh, as the bride, the future. The moment you put your faith in Christ, He places His wedding ring on you, so that you can have the assurance that your bridegroom is coming. You're taken. This is what it's talking about. But even though we look forward to that wedding day, what we need to hear in Ephesians is God has given us these things. This is our incredible wealth that we are his, that we we can operate out of it right now as we do life in this world in which we live. That's what's happening here. If I've said it, Once, I've said it several times in this study, too often believers are living on crackers and cheese when God has put an amazing buffet in front of us. 
and it's time to begin enjoying what God has placed before us. If the book of Ephesians should do anything for us, may it help us to understand what is ours so that we can walk in that wealth and use it for his glory as a testimony to the world. Charles Spurgeon wrote a little devotional book called A Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. And for each day of the year, it has a promise from God's word. It also has a short devotional thought. But Spurgeon described each of those sections as being as good as money in the bank for anyone who would claim it. He says it's just like writing a check against a bank account. Friends, you have much in Christ. Be encouraged. Enjoy what he's available to you, but not, not just enjoy it. Realize how important it is to use that because there are people here who need to know this Christ that you have found. I want you just to take a moment between you and God, and I want you to consider these things. Just let it go quiet and ask the Holy Spirit what it is that he needs you to hear and what it is that he would have you to do with it. Just take that moment.